Hello and welcome to the Hive Podcast with me, Natalie Nahai. So I was going to release the fourth season later this spring, but as I'm now quarantined here in Spain, I felt it would be a better use of my time to record a special series of conversations right now, both for my own sanity and also with the intention of accompanying and supporting you as we walk through this really unusual territory together. In this series, I want to explore how the coronavirus has and is changing the ways in which we live. From its impact on our social, psychological and physical well-being, to its effect on our businesses, economies, our cultures and the climate. Crucially, at the heart of my inquiry, I want to unearth what unexpected opportunities this situation may bring, not only for our own lives, but also for the ways in which we want to build our future. With our current lifestyles, norms and interconnected systems now collectively on pause, how can we use this window of time wisely to consider what we want to change, connect with what we most deeply treasure and let go of the things we no longer need? And with global emissions and pollution now at an ebb, what insights and knowledge can we take forward from this moment to reduce our impact on the earth while rebuilding our lives, our economies and our societies in a regenerative way. I hope you'll join me as we dive into these big questions. And as always, if you'd like to know more, you can find additional resources and links at natalinahai.com forward slash the high podcast. And you can also reach out to me personally on Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn at natalinahai. And if there's anyone you know who's really struggling right now, who you feel might be supported by the topics and themes and conversations that we hold within this podcast, please do send them a link. Thank you again for joining me in this strange time. I hope you enjoy the show. So for the first of these conversations, I wanted to dive into the big questions and thought, who better to invite back on the show than my beloved friend, the wonderful author and psychotherapist, Dr. Erin Balick. If you've been following the show for a while, you'll know that I actually kicked off the first ever episode with him. And so it felt like a really fitting moment to dive back into this together. So Erin is an author, a clinical psychotherapist and the director of Stillpoint Spaces UK, the London-based hub of an international organisation devoted to sharing ideas from depth psychology with the wider public. He's a psychological consultant for the media and speaks a lot about the impact of social media and tech on the individual and society. And he's been the resident agony uncle for BBC Radio 1 and CBBC for quite some time now. He was featured on Radio 4's The Digital Human, and Aaron has also been involved in a variety of projects that aim to bring quality mental health content to programming for young people and adults. We recorded this conversation just a short time ago, and as things are changing so rapidly at the moment, I wanted to publish this episode sooner rather than later. I'll be releasing a new one each weekend, and I'll include additional links in the show notes page at natalinahai.com if you want to dive deeper. Thanks again for listening. I really enjoyed this conversation and I hope you do too. So 
So Erin, thank you so much for joining me in conversation for this very special launching episode of this new series. It's a pleasure to be here. So we've talked about this a little bit. And one of the questions that you suggested we explore, which I love, is what you think is happening in the global human psyche right now. So I want to start from there. What do you think is happening? Natalie, it's funny because we did talk about this uh, late last week. So we're like Mm. in the middle of this week. And late last week, my sense of the global psyche was completely different from how I feel (laughs) it is now, um, which is testament to what is happening, I think, which is um, daily changes, things moving very, very quickly, uh, new information all the time. And it feels like globally we are, I think we're in two two things. So one one is kind of a, a constant state of adaptation and what I would call a manic defense, which is something I can talk about a little bit later. Mm. Um, but I think very possibly um, a global reconsciousness is happening. I think when we come out the other side of this thing, which I'm sure we will, we will come out of it with a changed consciousness, which I think is really interesting. That's fascinating. What What are the main shifts that you are beginning to observe, do you think? We've lived in the West broadly in a generation uh, that has, and, and I'm saying kind of mostly in Western Europe, um, North America, the global North, it's often called, you know, we've been living since the end of the Second World War um, with a generation and a half of people who haven't experienced um war on a global scale, famine on a global Mm. scale, you know, excluding large parts of the world, where the biggest thing that people think was life-changing was 9-11, right? And I think what's happening now, because it's so global, and because it's much bigger than 9-11, it's kind of, I mean, you could call it an insult to the human ego (laughs) writ large, right? Mm. We are not in control as much as we thought we were. Our systems aren't nearly as solid as they thought we were. Everyday life as a dependable entity isn't as dependable as we thought it was. Many people kind of knew this theoretically. Mm. Um, You know, there's that book, The Black Swan, which talks about this very clearly. And, you know, um, Taleb, I think he's called. He's from Lebanon. So he experienced that with the collapse of Lebanese culture. So basically, in the rich part of the world, it's like, oh, my gosh, we're not really in control. Hmm. And the not rich part of the world, it's probably, you know, here we go again with another crisis. Hmm. We're all in this one together. I do think that's very interesting, this idea of um, shock, I think, and the response that people have to that shock. I was talking this morning with a dear friend of mine who I'm going to interview for this a little later in the series. And we were talking about what I think maybe touches on what you mentioned about this kind of manic coping and response which is that what I've seen in the last 12 or so days. So yeah, today, the date of recording, it's 12 days since Spain has been more or less in lockdown. And what I've seen is this clamoring to get online, to make all of your courses, your products, your services available online, to move our our socialization online, to move basically the public square and the physical space and the cafes and the restaurants and the pubs, Mm -hmm. to move that into a virtual environment. And on the one hand, I kind of get this sense of, okay, we want to continue normality. We want to create a space in which we can continue to have our social connections. But on the other hand, it just feels very frenetic. And I'm wondering if there is something about the settling into this situation um, 
and what that looks like depending on how safe and secure you are financially because that of course has a massive bearing on on how we respond but the settling into the situation and what that means over time in terms of how manically or um, distractedly we respond versus how much we turn inward and actually try to find something in ourselves that helps us be more resourceful with what's happening what what are your thoughts around that yeah um it's it, it's a it's a lot in in your question i think and uh i think so i th- i think we're all in this manic defense at the moment and uh i think practicality is often a representative of manic defense so you know you think back to i don't know earlier times in your life where maybe you're manically hoovering the floor because you have an exam date due right <laughs> yeah. that's like a really much easier version of it but it, mm. it usually represents itself in some kind of you know um practical doing mm. and there's a lot of practical doing and it, on the one hand it's like isn't it great that we have this international internet infrastructure which can carry a lot of these communications and that's part of the the reconsciousness that's going on, you know, like what is work going to look like when this is over, when we discover how much we probably can do from home mm. and remotely and how flexible working structures might be going forward. That could be a really positive benefit. But I think most of us in this moment are into the doing, whether it's, you know, ordering ventilators and creating new hospitals or trying to maintain the revenue for your business or trying to work out what benefits you can get because you are not working most people in this very moment aren't in the moment of crisis where the food isn't coming in. I'm sure there are a few, I know that's happening in food banks, Mm. but we're kind of in this preparatory phase, Mm. which is a little bit like hoovering the floor. So the floor does need to be hoovered and preparations do need to be made. But I think the level in which people are focused and manically nuts about prep, uh, is also a defense against fear, anxiety, disappointment, sadness, and loss. Mm. And a lot of people are saying, and I think this is very scary also, is that we're kind of in the calm before the storm here. Like mm. I think um, Spain's probably a little bit ahead of us. Mm. Italy's a little bit ahead of Spain. But um, we will have to deal with more pressure And I think it's really important that in this more calm period for most people who aren't already there um, to see if they can stop for a moment and let themselves catch up with themselves. Because if you Mm. move from manic defense into crisis management, there's very, very little space. That's so interesting. This is reflecting the conversations that literally we're just starting to have. And I I wonder how prescient that is. I wonder how many people are getting a sense that maybe maybe stillness is something to be cherished each day to try and create space for reflection because I think it's probably going to get more difficult to cultivate that as we go forward. I think in the prep stage, there is also this ability to plan and to create new rhythm and to say, okay, right, I'm going to cope by getting up at whatever time it is. I've got friends who are um, ex-military who are going into super crazy fitness regimes. And mm-hmm. I don't know, what do you think there is... Now, the quality of this moment, the freneticness and the manic defense aspect that we can actually harness to be able to create a more grounded response in the longer term. Is there a possibility there? So it really depends where you are inside the crisis. So obviously, if you're a frontline health worker or um, a, a, 
a necessary service that is out there in building the hospitals, making the ventilators, doing that sort of a thing. This is not a still moment at all. For most people, at the moment anyway, who are in lockdown, there's a kind of forced stillness going on. Mm. And for them, I think they can take that as an opportunity to find some space um, that previously was less available to them. I mean, in the UK at the moment, we're allowed to leave the house once a day for shopping and exercise. Well, and there's something very special about leave, living in a major world city that's so quiet and tranquil at the moment. You know, this week here is when the cherry blossom trees are coming out. And there's an opportunity there inside that lockdown when you leave the house to see that spring still happens, right? The flowers still bloom. There's these opportunities to take these moments of stillness into your heart rather than reside in a space of anxiety and panic if you can. And I would even encourage, you know, the the frontline workers when they're coming out hmm. of that hospital or where they're coming out of that high intensity environment before they go back home, can they kind of sip a moment of stillness and take the quiet that's been enforced upon us to find a little bit of peace. Well, yeah, I was reading this morning, actually, that the British government has invited people to volunteer for the NHS. And at the time of reading, there was something like 560,000 people who'd responded yes. And this is just volunteers to help support the service. Um, yeah, and they were expecting a quarter of a million. Yeah, I think it's like 25,000 was their hope. And now they're they're thinking, okay, well, maybe it's going to be more like 750,000 or something. I mean, it's extraordinary, the response. Um, and I was reading elsewhere that uh, farms in the UK are really in need of people to come and help them harvest the fresh produce, so vegetables and fruits and the rest of it, because with Brexit and now compounded with um, borders closing with COVID, they don't have the workers. And so... Th- while while I'm thinking, oh, so I'm sitting here from from Spain, looking at this from a slightly more distant point of view, but I'm thinking there's also on a day to day basis a huge seismic shift in the way that many people will choose to change their lives or out of necessity change their lives. So if that means retraining because you're out of a job and suddenly you're going to work on a farm on a field for a few months, that's a massive change in terms of your experience of life, where you get your money, how you relate to the food as well that's in your environment. Do you think that this level of disruption to our day-to-day lives, whether on the scale of changing your job and the rest of it, or on the scale of going out once a day, do you think it can lead to lasting deep change? That's my that's my optimistic hope. I mean, I think there's an I don't think there's just an opportunity. I think it's happening. So there's a major reorientation going on here, and we are just at the beginning of that reorientation. You know, it's like everybody's will, including my own, despite the fact that some of that will, I think, is quite selfish, is, you know, when can we revert back to norm? Yeah. When when will the status quo come back? Yeah. When can I get on a plane to anywhere when I want to? And when can I go to the supermarket and go to a restaurant and go to the pub? You know, and when can it be yesterday? Right. And I think the reorientation is kind of like the nature of yesterday brought us today, you know, um, just the the international structures of the world, climate Mm. change, population, you know, the way we do food, the way we do meat, all of it, you know, brought us here. 
and uh, we're going to have to come out the other side differently. And I think that's not just going to be macro stuff like how we do food, how we do travel, but I think it's going to be how we do work, how we conceive of healthcare systems, yeah. how we conceive of how government works. You know, I think the the role of big government is actually really foreground here. You know, we're going to see what's going to happen in a place like America and a place like Europe, um, where the expectation is that the government will do stuff and the other expectation where, you know, you just you need to look after yourself. Mm. And I think this is going to push us towards a more collaborative environment. I really hope so. I mean, I think one of the interesting um, elements to consider here is also how social norms begin to shift. And I know, you know, people are talking a lot about social distancing, which I find a curious thing because I think actually it's more physical distancing. We've just taken our social connection online. So I think maybe physical distancing is more accurate. But I wonder with a prolonged amount of time how that's going to shape the norms around how we physically interact with each other. And it makes me think, well, um, is it a possibility that this becomes taboo? Uh, that when people finally get out, there is a reluctance to touch? Or will it be the opposite? You know, if we have a scarcity of touch, which is so vital for our sense of well-being and connection and um, joy, I think really if I think of touch, it's one of the things that gives me the most joy. When we come out of this, because it has been scarce, will it be something that we embrace all the more? Are these things that you kind of see playing out differently depending on the length of time we might have to be isolated? I don't know. You know, my, my sense is, is that the human motivation to relate to each other is so fundamental and so mm. strong that it's going to take a lot more than even 18 months of social distancing. You know, it's it's evolutionary. I don't think it's behavioral. Yeah. So I think probably what will happen is people will rush rush back with a much higher level of gratefulness about the simple pleasures of meeting a friend after work for a drink or hugging someone or seeing a friend in the park and being able to go up to them. Mm. You know, I think there will be a great deal of pleasure and gratitude potentially. And, you know, I think back to something like, uh, you know, the early eighties when the AIDS epidemic was happening and, you know, you, you compare now to then they didn't even know it was a virus for, I don't know, five or six years oh, wow. or something, you know, they didn't know how it was transmitted. Um, the huge intensive fear, um, people still had sex with each other and a lot of people died for it, but the motivation to be with people is very, very strong and sometimes even um, outstrikes fear. And I think that's why we see a lot of people, you know, quote unquote, breaking the rules at the moment hmm. because something seems so unnatural about not socializing that it's almost like it doesn't compute. Mm. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of my sense as well. I think if I were to be able to see some of my beloved ones, like say if you were sitting across the room from me, I would find it extremely difficult and actually to the point of physically uncomfortable not to give you a massive hug. And it, it that to me says something quite striking about the depth of of need for being able to express and receive appropriate physical contact absolutely it's a it's a very big ask and you know it's very interesting that this very big ask is coming in the midst of what has been called a loneliness epidemic Mm. and actually um we might see some change there because now that people are stuck in their homes and reliant Mm. on things like video conferencing and other social media 
um, maybe that's bringing in a lot of those people who are suffering lonely or bringing in a lot of empathy for people who weren't suffering that, who can kind of, you know, experience it and use all of these wonderful technology tools we have to to mitigate it. Mm. It's not as good as a cuddle, but it is something. Mm. So I want to dive in a bit to what you mentioned about this this idea of, re- I don't know how you want to say it, reconsciousing, reconsciousnessing. Yeah. <laughs> Do you want to unpack that for me? <laughs> so I, I think I first said reconsciousing, and then I think I said reorienting. Let's say reorienting consciousness. That's nice. Yeah, yeah great. I think there's a, a reorienting of consciousness that goes on here. And I think on the individual scale, which I'm more familiar with as a psychotherapist, is when somebody gets, um, say, a terminal diagnosis, or they think they've got a terminal diagnosis, and they find out that it's not. It's kind of like the death moment mm. or the mortality moment writ large, you know, a global mortality moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We are not indestructible. Our amazingly connected world that seems to operate the same day for day for day can change in a matter of weeks. Yeah. So it's basically a blow to narcissism, (laughs) right? Communal human narcissism. The world is bigger than us. And this thing that is so much tinier than us is grinding us to a halt. Mm. And I think it's going to take a long time to find out what that reorienting does, because we're the very first step. We're like the, oh my gosh, step, right? Mm. I don't think you can come out the other side and go back to your status quo place anymore. I think people will experience and experience themselves as smaller and more vulnerable. Um, and like I said before, possibly more grateful for the things that we, we do have. I do wonder with that, because there's this principle known as hedonic adaptation, which is basically the fact that when we are exposed to a stimulus and we have a positive or negative emotional response to that, our response to the stimulus attenuates over time. So basically we adapt to that which is around us. So you experience something really hard and you learn to live with, for instance, I don't know, having, say you you have the misfortune of having to have your leg amputated. Of course, that's a massive trauma over time you adjust or say for instance you get you know the winning ticket of the lottery and over time of course you adjust and so I wonder do you think this will be a big and deep enough wake-up call to so fundamentally change our baseline that we don't just hedonically adapt to how things were before so suddenly we're free we go out into the streets and everything tries to revert back to the previous normal is there a new normal from a different baseline that we could maybe come to or land upon uh no i i don't think i don't think that that function will change because i think we are we are quite homeostatic as creatures so you know um the good news in that is that you know if it were to revert like this forever we would find that that hedonic homeostasis where we just become adapted to it and it actually doesn't feel any longer like a terrible loss it becomes Mm. the new normal and then whatever the new normal follows, will then we will then adapt and become mm. homeostatic to that. So I think we need to bring on, in a sense, more executive functioning, right? So our thinking brain, that when the crisis is over, and there might be an opportunity to revert to old behaviors, we have to bring in that, that cerebral cortex to say, okay, let's pause. And let's take this as an opportunity to see how we can reorient society in a way that is better 
for us, better for the planet, that is healthier as a society, that is more respectful. You know, it's like, I, th- I really do. And I don't want to sound like an optimist in the face of something that is really scary, but, you know, we will have pretty much all of our infrastructure intact. Mm. You know, when you think of what Europe looked like in 1945, you know, the railways were gone, the buildings were gone, the, you know, every everything was gone, you know, everything was ruined. And it was rebuilt, you know, in historic time pretty, pretty quickly. If we don't have to rebuild all that stuff, but we can rebuild the way we do society from the ground up. Mm. I mean, what an opportunity is there. You know, we're already ripping up all the rules. Why do we want to go back to the old ones? Well, so here's what I'm wondering, because I think I also have a very similar um, hope to you. That's the kind of vision I'm holding for you know, getting us out the other end of this. Okay, well, if there's something proactive that we can do, how do we start to create steps that take us in that direction? Um, the kind of society that you've described or sort of started to describe. Mm-hmm. But I also wonder... And this is something, again, oh, it just feels so imaginal at this point. But I also wonder how fundamental the changes will be to the infrastructures that, for instance, take us from A to B or bring us our food. So things like the airlines going under and structurally having fewer airlines to take us from one place to the next um, or the need to grow food locally because we can no longer import things as we once could with such ease. Um, yeah, well, I mean, I think this is where the challenge lies, because I, I, I think, you know, th- this thing, this thing will pass. And there will be the opportunity to create those things again, I think, very quickly, because the infrastructure is there, and there will be the will and there will be the profit motive to do that, right? It's like, let's just get it up and running again. And people are, there's a lot of ingenuity in people. And I think it can happen more quickly than we might imagine. Mm. Um, I don't think it's necessarily what the world needs. And this is from someone who really loves international travel <laughs> probably the most, you know, and, and, and really also sees its uh, its downside, you know, um, that the earth cannot sustain it the way we were doing it, mm. the way we are doing it, the way we were doing it up until two weeks ago. It can't. So we either have to find another way or we have to make some pretty major concessions. Mm. And I hope that we can keep some of those benefits because I'm a global citizen and an internationalist, and I don't want to meet people via Zoom for the rest of my life in foreign countries, right? <laughs> um, I could probably live with uh, not having passion fruits, you know, available all the time or only having seasonal strawberries or, or who knows. Mm. You know, there are some other things that I think we could and maybe should get used to. Um, but I'm also, you know, I also don't think we're going to have to give everything up. I think in, mm. in a lot of these ways, we just have to find different ways of doing it. I wonder with this, because you're, well, yeah, the UK is now a few days into lockdown. Um, and in Spain, we're nearly two weeks in. By the time this episode goes out, it'll be a full two weeks. Are there things already that you find yourself feeling grateful for that you didn't necessarily attend to before this whole situation really started to hit? So... Yeah, I'm going to concentrate on the things that uh, can be grateful for in the moment because my mind immediately went to like retrospectively, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> to be able to get on a train and go somewhere. Yeah. Um, I have really seen a great deal of subtle um, but really heartwarming human kindness happening. Mm. Um, 
on the really basic level. I see people checking in with each other. I see neighbors, um, you know, creating WhatsApp groups with each other and finding out how they can help. Like you said before, you know, more than half a million people signing up for this volunteer scheme. Um, you know, I had a chat with the guy who runs the corner shop around the corner for about a half an hour who we've been on an acquaintance basis for years mm -hmm. and talking about what's going on and making sure that we look out in the neighborhood. Um, I run a business uh, and all of our customers are like responsive to the, the challenges that we're facing and are kind of supporting us through it in really generous ways. Well, um, you see this happening all around with people who are kind of like supporting their local bars or local restaurants by like buying vouchers for the future, you know, like it does seem to be bringing out, I think in most people, a will towards togetherness and support, which I don't think you see in everyday times. Mm. The stories of the nasty stuff, um, are the ones that you're going to see that are going to circulate on Twitter and that sort of thing. But I actually think that they are far outweighed by what's going on between individuals every day. Mm. So I've been looking at some of the different social channels and how I'm posting content on there with a specific type of emotional quality and how that's being received. And I find that, strangely enough, the platform where people seem to be the most willing to share more vulnerably is Instagram. I'm, I'm sending, like I'm doing like a... Most days, so six days of the week, I'm asking myself a question that I've been struggling with that day that I've been thinking about. I'm posting it on, on Instagram, on my stories. And because um, what I really find I can't stomach is when people tell you how to deal with a situation, I find that so fucking unhelpful. <laughs> <laughs> I really like it when people ask me questions that then I can go, oh, that's interesting. What's the answer in my life? Anyway, so mine is sort of more a sense of trying to get the questions that I'm thinking with and then sharing it. And if people find that useful, great. And if not, they can ignore it. But I also have found that on LinkedIn and Twitter, people are just less interested. LinkedIn, for some reason, seems to be this domain where people are really into um, sharing videos of the weird shit they're doing at home <laughs> while working, which mm -hmm. to me just really struck me as a bit odd. And then Twitter, as you've mentioned, like it just seems to be this place where people are really keen to share just stuff of a really hard emotional valence so difficult stuff painful stuff stuff they're outraged by and I'm finding that actually the one platform that I'm having to really turn the volume down on in my life is Twitter because there is so much angst there which is a shame because there's also so much useful information from journalists etc um what's your read on that like why why is it that people are needing to vent in the way that they are is this something that you think can ever be helpful because clearly there's a lot of difficult stuff that this situation throws up and we want to connect with other people but I don't know there are ways of expressing it I think. Um, different social media uh, speak to different parts of our our psychological states right mm -hmm. so I, the LinkedIn the nature of LinkedIn is just kind of dry you know it's a <laughs> career work oriented social media so people you know are following implicit rules around that right so it's kind of broadly work related but they're trying to have a little bit of fun with it um i have a different experience to you with twitter actually i'm finding like lots of really funny memes coming across i, I find and maybe it's just who i'm following at the moment but i'm finding like lots of refreshing humor mm. um interspersed with those stories but a lot of kind of 
lightness, um, also a lot of resources, also a lot of sharing of things like petitions. There's a big, um, a lot of people were sharing petitions about supporting self-employed people, for example. So Twitter I've actually kind of, I've been on top of, I've liked. Facebook I don't use anymore because I find the way people use it very irritating (laughs) um, and venti. Um, But I think your experience on Instagram is because of the nature of Instagram. I think because it's visually oriented, um, I think, and it's not particularly newsy oriented, that kind of a thing. um, That's not generally what you find in your threads, Mm. that I think people are going there for a lighter feeling. Mm. And people are going... People who are posting are posting a form of self-expression and people who are going there are choosing who they follow because they want to be exposed to that expression. So I think there's just something more intentional about Instagram. That's super interesting. Yeah, I do wonder how we're going to be able to, when there's so much um, pulling our attention, how we're going to be able to make time to be more conscious about how we spend our day-to-day lives or rhythms is there something that you found to be helpful to you um i'm too much in the manic phase right now <laughs> to uh, <laughs> offer that kind of <laughs> i have to you know I'm, I'm i'm very flawed on this one i've got lots of ideas right but i haven't implemented them because i'm still manically preparing <laughs> what i can offer though um and what i know very close to my heart is that people need to have structures in their lives and that without some kind of structure Um, you're much more amenable to go towards depressed or anxious states. And if that structure isn't going to be imposed on us by nine to five working hours, we really have to impose that structure on ourselves. And I think each individual, when they come out of their manic defense, which I suggest you do as soon as you're able, again, because we don't know (laughs) what's coming three or four weeks down the line, um, Find, ask yourself what you need and draw yourself up, not too rigidly, a kind of a schedule. Yeah. So if you've lost your exercise routine because you've lost your mm. gym, incorporate that in there. If you're able to work more flexibly because you're not required to be, you know, on face to face meetings on Zoom or whatever it is, can you reorient your work life that's more amenable to what your needs are, what your circadian Mm. rhythms are, your sleep rhythms, your eating rhythms, your exercise rhythms, meditation, yoga. Um, Are you using that opportunity to go outside well? Are you awake? You know, are you maybe taking your ear pods out and stop listening to the news and hear some bird song? You know, it's like really And again, I feel I always feel like a Pollyanna when I say stuff (laughs) like this, but I do really mean it. You know, can you take this moment as an opportunity to consciously reorient to what's happening rather than worrying about what's coming down the line, being very upset about what's been disappointed and lost and be with be with the now. And there's a lot of disappointment around. Everybody has had to give up so much. You know, I think about these poor um, Olympic athletes, you know, mm. the one time in four years to, to shine, you know, and conferences canceled, theaters canceled, films, you know, canceled in the middle of development, you know, people who've spent years in preparation, so much disappointment and loss around. Mm. We need to make space for that disappointment and loss. And we need to feel all of those things, but feel it, you know, be 
to, to quote Ram Das, you know, be here now with it. <laughs> don't be in yesterday and don't be in tomorrow. I wonder from from the perspective of grief and loss, and I imagine, I mean, Pauline Boss is someone who I really admire, who's written quite a lot about ambiguous loss as it relates to relationships. So instead of when there's a hard stop and someone, for instance, dies because of an illness or um, you lose a job and it's a clear cut, underlined thing, there's also in life um, these situations where things kind of ambiguously disappear. So, for instance, someone goes missing or someone is not present to you through alcoholism or in this instance, maybe you're someone who works from home and so you didn't go out very much, but now you go out even less. So there's kind of these, this grey zone. Um, are there specific practices that you feel can help people, whether they're at the hard side of clear-cut loss, so suddenly they wake up and their job is gone, or at the other end in the more grey zone of sort of ambiguity uh, of things that they've lost, but it's happened slowly. Okay, I think there are probably two things that I want to say. So another expression for that one about ambiguous loss, Mm. or we we call like complex grief or complex loss. Um, It is more difficult to manage complex grief than it is straight up grief for most people, because what one entails bringing your psychological and emotional system on board to the reality of the thing that isn't there anymore. And the second one involves bringing all that stuff on board to something that you're not sure is there or how it's there. So the the, the work is much less clear. Mm. Um, while there are kind of probably more straight up um, approaches to both of those, I think underlying all of that um, and actually underlying most psychological and emotional suffering that we experience is what I would call a distinction between identification with the suffering part of yourself and seeing yourself as experiencing suffering, which is kind of subtle. And it's one of those things that's easier to do in theory than it is to do in practice. Mm. But say, even if you're experiencing complex grief that you don't understand, that confuses you and that you don't know what to do with, If you're able to step aside from that just a little bit and say, this is me experiencing these feelings because I don't know what to do with them, dot, 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 and that's kind of okay, rather than I am this thing that is confused and grief-stricken and anxious. Mm. In the first position, you're, you're viewing it from the perspective of awareness, so there's a bit more space between you and the feeling. Yeah, so your, your emphasis goes towards awareness. Um, And I wouldn't say away from the feeling. The feeling is still there and it's just as strong. But rather than I am the feeling, it's I am aware of the feeling that is occurring Mm. with a kind of self-compassion with that. Like, of course, this is hard. And how could I feel another way when I don't understand? And when you find yourself identified with the grief, with the suffering, with the fear, if you notice you are that thing, that's your opportunity to say, okay, I'm just going to step back and I'm going to become aware that I'm fearful, aware that I'm anxious, or aware that I'm grief-stricken. This doesn't make the feelings go away, but it makes them much more bearable. Mm. From your clinical work, the work that you're doing now with clients, are there specific themes that you see showing up that you think could give people more broadly some insights into maybe what to recognize, the difficult things that may be coming up for them, how to recognize them, um, 
and how to relate to them, kind of like you've just mentioned with the grief, but other elements that might also be showing up right now for people? I, I think, um, <laughs> so everybody has their own unique form of personal craziness. You know what it's like <laughs> when you're crazy, right? Mm. <laughs> so yeah, you, you know what it's like. I think I know what it's like when you're crazy, Natalie. <laughs> you might know a little bit what it's like. For my crazy. <laughs> what kind of crazy are you talking about? We're talking about like crazed, oh my God, give me a full fat old fashioned crazy. Or crazy in, oh my God, I'm having such a giant wobble and existentially I'm fucked crazy. <laughs> well, either one, whichever one is yours, right? So for some people it's going to be, you know, it's going to be crazy, crazy, you know, need need a lot more help crazy. For others, it's not going to be that. Mm. But it's still, it's always going to be your own, right? Mm -hmm. So your knowledge of your craziness whether it's a symptom of schizophrenia or whether it's an anxiety disorder or whether it's run of the mill, um, how you feel when you've been criticized by someone. Mm. The ticket is to know what that is for you. And the ticket out is for you to be able to identify. Mm, to recognize it. Yeah, I'm in my crazy, right? So your crazy might be that you think something over and over again or that mm. you feel anxiety in your body or that you hear voices or that you have suicidal thoughts, mm. rather than taking the invitation to be that thing, having that experience, you say, oh, I'm in my crazy, right? I'm having suicidal thoughts again. I'm hearing voices. I'm so anxious. I'm so upset. I've got, I'm telling myself off about my body image, whatever it is. There I am in my crazy. Okay. I'm, I'm just going to stop. Like, it's not as simple as just stopping, but I'm going to step outside and be like, mm. Being in my crazy is my invitation to recognize that I'm in my crazy and then to let myself be crazy, but that let my let that not be myself. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. There I am being a little bit crazy. And then what do I so then the, the secondary questions might be um, become aware of the trigger that made you crazy. And it'll be usually a familiar one. It's like, OK, well, that sort of thing always makes me crazy. Fears of health stuff always makes me crazy. Fears of money stuff always makes me crazy. Yeah. Um, being separated my, from my loved one always makes me crazy. So <laughs> I have a right to my craziness mm. because I've identified the trigger. And then, okay, so when I hit that trigger, I go crazy. So let's shorten the crazy period by recognizing I've gone crazy, step aside, let myself have it a little bit, but don't mm -hmm. take the invitation to live there. That's so interesting. It's funny, when I go through uh, tricky periods, I always call it like a wobble. So, But there will be the Natalie wobble, right? It's like <laughs> this is my wobble. Oh, there's definitely a Natalie wobble. Yeah. And the thing is, I think also just the language that we use is so interesting. So you using the word crazy um, to me sort of conjures up images of more manicness. My wobbles are generally much more quiet and introverted. And so that's kind of, I find that it's even having language that, that feels like it captures some of the instability of the moment because it feels like a very volatile thing, at least for me when I dip into... Um, into wobbles my thinking on it is also associated with a bike so if I think of it as being on a bike most of the time I'm kind of sailing over the territory and it's pretty robust bike so the territory can come and go and I can adapt but occasionally something just knocks the wheel and then you come off it and I think even just having that mental framework mm -hmm. of what the wobble looks like and having that flavor of it means that it's also easier to deal with when it comes because there isn't the same level of chastising that I do to myself to say well you should know better than this it's like well we're on this terrain doing the best of the vehicle that you've got occasionally you're going to come off um and I think also having yeah so having that kind of compassionate 
for me, the visual approach can be really helpful in just not adding extra layers of discomfort, whether through shame or um, self-flagellation, saying you should be better than this. How did you not, you know, how, how are you not perfect yet, you mere mortal, you know? <laughs> These sorts of ridiculous expectations we foist on ourselves. Absolutely. And I, I think you brought up a really good point, which is the language that you use to describe it is so important. So my language, you know, is much more representative of what the Aaron crazy looks like, which is much more, you know, manic and <laughs> outward and kind of like frenetic. You know, that's where that's where I meet it. And yours is different. So you need to know mm. which yours is. Mm. And it's interesting, just as an example, you know, you and I had this conversation last week, mm. re-recorded it. Um, you know, after we finished, I got back in contact with you because I had a little encounter with my crazy, <laughs> right? I reflected on what we talked about. I felt like it wasn't quite right. Mm. And I could have gone with my crazy on that. But what I did do is I found myself in my crazy. I said, okay, what was the trigger? And then the second question is, what, what do you need to do? Mm. And it was, okay, call up Natalie and see if we can redo this because mm. I've had different thoughts than our, our first conversation. So that was a, a really concrete solution. Some of these don't have a really concrete solution. Your bike analogy is really helpful for the corona situation because in life we ride a bike and sometimes we fall off it and we have to get back on. Mm. The thing is we, we think we're riding our bike on a road that's pretty solid. And I think with the coronavirus, it's like the road fell off rather than the bike. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's like, what do you do when the road falls off? It's like, it's like falling off a bike. Like the road happens more rarely, but sometimes the road does fall off. This is one of those occasions. The road will come back. It will be different. It doesn't mean we identify with the thing that has stopped. It's that we kind of see if we can ease as well as we can into a changed situation into which we have to adapt. Mm. I also think one of the things that um, that helps make it not worse <laughs> when you when we have these moments of oh fuck um, is naming. I find I find that that can be so relieving to just stop the thing from snowballing. Kind of for me, it feels like it presses pause on the growth of the wobble. So, for instance. When there's a moment where I'm making up whatever narrative I'm making up in response to a situation, um, having spent several years trying to train myself to name the feeling or the response and say, okay, as this is happening, I feel this. This is where my head is at. This is the story that I'm telling myself. And saying it out loud, whether it's to a partner or a friend or even saying it out loud to myself, mm -hmm. um, I find that that often just gives enough spaciousness around the thing for it not to then kind of run away with itself. The other analogy I think of is, because uh, I feel like I've got lots of different aspects, um, and I'm sure most of us feel that we have different parts of ourselves. If you imagine your yourself as the bus driver, the one that's in the driving seat most of the time, and there's some loud fucker at the back <laughs> who always wants to kick shit off, mm -hmm. it's basically being aware of that voice and not letting them get in the driving seat and swerving you off. And I, I sometimes think that, I'm like, okay, What's the one at the back saying? How do I relate to that without giving them the wheel? Um, and of course, sometimes you swerve and of course it's going to happen. But yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's just me. I have these very visual relationships with my aspects. <laughs> I think it's great. And I think people need to find the visuals that, that, that work for them, right? And I think that's, that's how it works. You know, one of the ones that I use a lot, which I really like, is it's like you're walking down the street and you, you've got a, like a big um, 
like a St. Bernard on a, on the leash, right? And the oh, St. Bernard sees him. something and runs down the street and kind of pulls you <laughs> after it. Yeah, like, oh my, you know, it's this big dog pulling you down the street. Mm. And that can be your trigger, right? So it pulls you down mm. towards um, depression or anxiety or thinking circularly or ruminating, whatever it is. Um, turn the dog into a toy poodle, right? <laughs> so instead of it pulling you down the street, it kind of yaps at you and like tugs at the leash and like wants you to come its way. But it's just this little yapping kind of ridiculously <laughs> looking dog with a funny haircut. You know, it's like, I don't have to go, you know, it's annoying and I wish you'd shut up, mm. but I don't have to follow you down the street. Mm. I'm actually the person holding the leash. I like that. That's super lovely. And if you're pulled down the street by the St. Bernard, you can be like, I'm getting pulled down the street. What do I need to do now? So I want to ask a couple more questions. Um, I guess they, they they touch on the personal, but I think these often have kernels of truth that may be more widely applicable. Um, I want to ask what you feel is ever present in the situation with the amount of change that's going on. What are some of the things that are constant for you? Uh, I would say the, the relationships in my life. So the relationships in my life are constant for me, but they are now deployed in a different way. Mm. Um, so my my Tuesday Sopranos date, for example, I've been watching The Sopranos from the beginning with a friend of mine <laughs> every Tuesday night for the past year and a half. That's um, so nice. We had to do our date. It's been great. It's been really great, I got to say. But, um, you know, we did our date uh, on Tuesday um, with a FaceTime for 10 minutes and then kind of WhatsApp banter throughout, you know, timing the start, you know, you ready to go start now, you know, <laughs> um, FaceTiming afterwards. And uh, that relationship hasn't changed. The method that we deploy it has. Mm. Um, I would have preferred to have him over, mm. but it was pretty damn good, I have to say. And, you know, the same thing is happening with you, you know, who are a friend of mine and we're doing this. It has my staff team, my clients, my supervisees, my supervisor, you know, it's all moved to a different kind of deployment, but the relationships are all still there and mm. they're sustaining. And some of them are closer. My relationship with the guy at the corner shop is closer <laughs> with my neighbors. It's closer. We're keeping an eye on each other. You know, mm. it's pretty good, actually. I think that's a sustaining thing. And I'm also curious if this situation has shown you something that maybe you want to let go of that you weren't necessarily as aware of before. I'll tell you, I'm, I'm not there with it, but ideally the capacity to let go of everything <laughs> well, would be a really one. great skill. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I don't have that, but it's like, you know, what's the most important thing to me, you know, the people in my life? What am I manically in defense of at the moment? Mm. Sustaining everything that I know about my life. Yeah. My work, my workplace, my work colleagues, um, what I do every day. And if I were okay to let go of all of that, and that's not without consequences, um, I think that's a very powerful position to be in. It doesn't mean you give up or you stop trying, but it means that everything can be let go of. Which I think is very high level of spiritual development, which I'm nowhere near. But um, <laughs> I think that's the best answer I have for you. Yeah, I think this idea of being able to detach oneself from outcome and just be present uh, and yet relate to everything fully is uh, that's a big one. Um, actually, I guess connected to that, 
I'm also curious how courage shows up for you right now. I guess on that one, I might say, ask me in a few weeks because I I do know myself pretty well, and I do know that there's a high level of manic, the same manic defense I've been describing. Um, and manic defense is there for a reason because it gives you a bit of temporary Dutch courage. <laughs> um, mm. So I'm using that for what it's worth. Um, manic defense isn't sustainable; it always drops away at some stage. Mm. I feel like I have the resources. I don't think it's necessarily courage, but I think I have the resources of um, as much equanimity as I can get my head around to try and accept what's coming forward. I have some fear about that, um, but I've been working very hard for quite a long time on the notion of acceptance. And I think the next 18 months is going to be a real test in whether that's, um, that work is going to bear out for the real, the real testing. So come back to me. Oh, well, I'm kind of thinking maybe it'd be nice, a nice thing to do to have this conversation again in a month's time and see see where we're at and check in. Because mm. um, these big questions, I'm sure we're going to relate to them differently as things unfold. Because uh, the nature of For this sure. is so rapidly changing that um, we don't know what's, what's around the corner. Um, my final question then is, what question do you want people listening to dwell with at this moment in time? If I put all of my fears aside, and if I put all of my um, material worries aside for a moment, how can I use this total context as an opportunity to reorient my consciousness? Thank you for listening to The Hive Podcast with me, Natalie Nahai. To find out more about today's guest and the topics we explored, you can visit the show notes page at natalienahai.com forward slash The Hive Podcast. If you have any questions or feedback, you can find me on Twitter, LinkedIn and Instagram at Natalie Nahai. And if you enjoy the show, please give it a rating as it reaches new ears. And also, if there's someone that you feel could be supported by the content of this series, just ping on the link. Thank you again for listening and I look forward to sharing more with you in the next episode.